What is up, beautiful people? We have with us Megan. I really should have asked you what, how you say your last name. Is it Ahern? It's Ahern. Ahern. Megan Ahern. Um, she's a real estate investor. I saw her Instagram. I thought she was super cool. This is episode 100 of Scorch the Fear. So we're, we've finally done 100 episodes, guys. For those who've been longtime viewers, congrats. We've made it here. We've been doing 100 episodes. Missed maybe one or two weeks in the past two years, I guess now. So yeah, Megan, welcome to episode 100 and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I didn't realize I was episode 100. That's fantastic. Your episode 100. Yeah, no, it's a special episode. So um, real quick, just introduce yourself to my audience. Just tell them what you do, um, you know, like what your career so far has been in real estate. Just give them like a real quick recap just so they know who you are. Yeah, so I started investing in 2015 um, and have been investing since. Um, Full time since 2018, and we've um, we've bought about 70 properties, a little over that, in the last five years. Um, I'm also a realtor, and I own a, a home staging company. Love it, awesome. So yeah, so real quick, just start with your like your fears right like i told you this this is how i always start every single one of these podcasts what were your fears when you were just starting out in real estate investing like what were your fears i feel like we have a lot of them as we were growing up um as kids that's where some of them originate from what were your fears and how did you overcome them yeah so i think when i was first first getting started even just down the learning journey I had kind of a fear that my family, my friends would think that this was kind of like weird or a scam or um, like not possible um, and just kind of push through on that. And then once, you know, you're getting started, obviously you have the fear of losing money or the fear of it not working. And actually the first deal that I did, I lost 20 grand on my first flip. And so that was kind of settled in as a fear of oh, like, oh no, yeah. <laughs> So that settled in as like, maybe that was a, a something I should have been fearing more, but. Okay. So how did you deal with that? I mean, that's really annoying, especially losing money on your first flip. I think most people who flip the first one, they lose money unless you partner with someone who's done tons and tons of flips. Right. I feel like, like, did you partner with anybody or did you just do it on your own? No, I totally did it on my own. I found a what I thought was a deal. It was like a long distance flip in Albuquerque. Never been to Albuquerque. And then um, put it under contract, tried to wholesale it and couldn't wholesale it, which should have told me that's not a good deal or else someone yeah. would have bought it um, and just decided to flip it myself. And so it was a big learning um, curve there and also just like education in general. I would pay $20,000 to learn how to flip and uh I learned exactly what not to do on that deal. I love it. So then, so what did, so you, you went in head first, you're like, screw it. We're going to do this flip. You lost 20,000. How did you recover from that? Right. I mean, $20,000 is not a little amount of money. That is a lot of money. Like what, what did you have to do? What did you, what did you do to be like, you know what, we're going to keep pushing forward. Um, right about the same time I had bought that flip, we had also bought a live-in flip in Southern California. And so I didn't realize yet that I was going to lose money on the Albuquerque house. 
Um, so I think that momentum of just keep pushing forward kind of helped us to get over it because once we realized that we were going to lose on the Albuquerque house, I had already started into a second deal and was realizing that I was going to make a lot of money on the second one. And so I could look at it from a holistic view and say like, I might lose money over here, but I'm going to make money over here. And I can see in the long run that if you make more than you lose, like you're still doing well. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point, right? As long as you're making more than you lose, it doesn't really matter in the end. Um, yeah. And it's, it's just a numbers game. Like even I lost money on a flip in September and uh, we lost like $17,000 on it and mm -hmm. it sucks when it happens, but you just kind of have to push forward and say like, well, I've done 70 deals and I probably lost money on four of them. And so it's still fine. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty, pretty good track record to do 70 deals and then only lose money on four of them. Right. Like that's pretty freaking solid overall. Um, so let's go back. Like, where did you learn? Where did you even learn about real estate? Like, how did you even start getting into it? So my grandparents were uh, retired from commercial real estate. And so I recognized it as like, this is such a cool opportunity. I saw that they always had money and they never worked. So I wanted that, but they wouldn't teach me about it because they thought that landlording was absolutely terrible. I think they kind of didn't want their grandkids to get into it. Um, so I went, you know, to the internet and then was served up with an ad for a uh, rich dad, rich dad, poor dad seminar and went to that, paid like $30,000 um, to learn how to do it, which really just, I feel like taught me enough to get me into trouble. Um, and so, yeah, when I failed on my first flip, I was actually already 50 grand in the hole between the education and the failed first flip. And did that scare you at all? Oh, yeah. Did that scare you at all? Like the fact you were 50 grand in the hole, that's a lot of money, right? Yeah. Like, like to most people that's like out. So like, how are you feeling? I know you had the other flip and you knew you, and you at least thought you were going to make a lot of money, but how are you doing? Like, how are you doing emotionally? Like, were you okay? Like, were you freaking out? Were you like keeping it cool? Or are you just a calm, subtle person? Like, I'm curious. Um, I'm not a calm, subtle person. So I probably was freaking out a little bit, but um, so the live and flip saved us a little bit on that because we were able to do a cash out refi and get a lot of the debt that we had um, kind of accumulated from that education and the flip. Um, we were able to kind of refi that off. So I wasn't freaking out in like the we're going to go bankrupt because we have $50,000 in debt. Um, and we also, you know, my husband and I both had jobs at that point. So it wasn't that bad. I mean, that sounds terrible, right? $50,000 is a lot of money, but it wasn't like we're starving to death now because of it. And then um, my husband got medically separated from the Marine Corps in 2018 and he couldn't work anymore. He had a really bad back injury. And so we kind of decided like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he didn't really know what he wanted to do. Couldn't work um, standing up. And so we just decided to move to Lincoln, Nebraska and kind of go for broke on real estate and make it work. We just backed ourselves in a corner and had to keep going. Love it. Love it. So how did you choose? Um, so you're in Nebraska, right? And then you start, was that, you said that flip, I thought you said it was in Albuquerque. Did I mishear that? Or was that in yeah, Nebraska? Yeah. And I, 
No, I lived in Southern California and the flip was in Albuquerque. And then okay. we decided to move to Lincoln, Nebraska. To do okay. Drugs. So you, you just had, you were just like, you know what, screw it. We're doing it in, in uh, New Mexico, even though we don't live there, we're going to try virtually flipping. Do you feel like that was part of it too? Like the fact you were virtually flipping, like, do you still virtually flip? Or, and if you do, what like recommendations do you have to other people to make it more successful for them? Yeah. After that first one, I did not virtually flip after that. I really recognize that a lot of the issues that I had um, came from me not being there. It could have been solved um, from me being there. So when we got started or when we moved to Nebraska, it was because I wanted to be able to touch my projects. I wanted to be able to check up on them however often I needed to or even like do some of the projects myself. Um, which is probably not the best way of scaling your business, but I think it helps um, kind of save you a little bit and not get taken advantage of by contractors to be there. Um, but yeah, so moving to Nebraska was more a feature of we wanted cash flowing rentals and we just couldn't find that in Southern California. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. So your main goal was buy and hold from the beginning, right? Like, do you like, I thought, yeah, I also saw you said you're mainly like a buy and hold investor now, correct? Yeah, we probably hold like a third and flip or wholesale the rest of them. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So what are your main markets right now? Lincoln, Nebraska, and then the surrounding small towns around Lincoln. Okay. That's so it. a lot in Nebraska. I love it. So you flip wholesale and buy and hold. Um, what makes you want to do all three? Just most of the people I know usually primarily become wholesalers and then maybe own a few rentals and maybe do a few flips or mainly do flipping. Then they wholesale a few, buy and hold a few, mainly do buy and hold and then wholesale and flip a little bit. What made you choose doing all three? Um, we kind of just do whatever we need to. I think you can kind of like either narrow down super specifically, like I am a wholesaler and I don't really have a market or you can get really focused on a market like Lincoln and then say, I'm going to do whatever makes money make sense at that time. And some of that is, you know, going into that market, we didn't have jobs, so we didn't have like a fixed income. So there are times when you have to like, Hey, I got to flip a house to make some money so I can put that money into this other rental. And so it just kind of depends on, you know, whether you need money or whether you need cash flow at the time. And then being realtors, it's helpful that, you know, we get the rents at the first of the month. We get flip profits, these big juicy flip profits kind of every month or every two months. And then as a realtor, we're closing maybe, you know, four or five transactions a month. So you're getting that little sprinkle of income and then we have the staging business. So you're getting that, you know, weekly or multiple times a week income as well. It kind of really smooths out your income. I think a lot of people that are just flippers have these like big juicy profits and then nothing and then big juicy profits and nothing. And it's a lot of like that feast or famine and we wanted to smooth that out. That totally makes sense to me. Yeah. Like I, you don't know me as well. I'm mainly wholesale. I own a few rentals. I'm personally not a fan of flipping. I like wholesaling way more. I do it in California. So wholesaling checks can be as big as flip checks a lot of times. Right. Mm -hmm. But I really like, I, but I totally see what you mean. Like if I own more rentals or 
if there was another thing too, it would be a little bit less feast or famine. I totally get that. So was that, what are your goals? Like, I'm curious, cause you have so many different companies right now. Like, what are your goals for each company? Like, is there, is there a, yeah, just like, what are your goals? What's like, what are you guys trying to get to? So this year we wanted to bring on 20 more rental units um, and flip 10 houses. I think we'll probably flip 10 houses. That's done. Um, but we won't hit that rental goal. Um, but we brought on probably about 15 this year. Um, I, it's just, you know, add add properties to, to our portfolio and then just keep flipping for income um, in all reality. I think I would like to get to a point where we're at like 50 to 100 rental units personally owned. And that would probably be enough if there is such a thing as enough. I think that I have a feeling that could be enough potentially, maybe. But I think you might be what you're getting at, though, is something that I talk to people a lot about, which is eventually you'll get to a point where you consider yourself even financially free. But then you just do it for the love of the game because the game is so fun. Right. Um, just something I want to talk to the audience about real quick is just how fun the game of getting deals, making them profitable building the portfolio and just how fun the game of real estate can become. And I think that's what you were alluding to right there, right? In the sense of even if you had 100 to 150 rentals, you probably wouldn't stop. You'd probably be like, why would I stop? Because the game itself is so fun. Um, can you talk about that, about like how important it is to be like having fun while you're doing this business? Because I think a lot of people stress themselves out about with like potentially losing money or things going wrong in the business because always something's going wrong at some point in the business, right? That's the nature of business. So talk real quick about the like, importance of like making sure you're still having fun with it while you're doing the journey. Yeah. So I love real estate. Like I could talk about it 24 seven. Um, my husband's not that way, right? He's like, shut it off. It's, you know, work-life balance, all that. And I'm like, I love doing it. Like at some point, like you said, it becomes a game. And then it's just almost like a challenge or a Rubik's cube where you're like, okay, maybe I have too much deal flow and not enough money, or I have too many deals and enough money and not enough contractors. And so it's always like this little Sudoku puzzle of how to put it all together and how to make it profitable for you, which I love. Like to me, it's a puzzle and it's super fun. So I think that if, even if I had like whatever quote, quote enough is, I would still want to do the game. And I think too, when you're getting started, it's like pushing a train, right? Like at first you have to push on it so hard. And we worked a hundred hour work weeks and we're just like killing ourselves trying to get it going. And then now, even if I stopped, even if I stopped all my paid marketing and totally backed off the gas, deals would still come to me because I've made enough of a reputation that like, oh, I buy houses in Lincoln, Nebraska. Lincoln, Nebraska, people are just going to bring me houses. Um, and so it's a lot easier, maybe not easier is the right word, but um, it it can be put on autopilot um, a lot, a lot more once you kind of get it, get it moving. Do you think people are born with like that innate, like I just could talk about real estate all day? I'm like you, I could talk about real estate all day. I don't mind turning it off, but I could, if somebody wanted to talk to me about real estate, I would talk to them 24 seven if they felt like it. Do you think that's an innate thing where somebody like is just constantly wanting to do it? Or do you feel like that's 
something that's like learned or something you learn as you're doing the business? I think as it, as you win at something, it becomes like that much funner. And then you want to talk about it more. If you were super sucky at real estate, you would stop talking about it pretty quick, you know? And so some of that is a learned thing. You start doing it, you get good at it, you become passionate about it. People want to talk to you more about it because you're the expert. Um, And then it becomes fun. Um, Yeah. That makes sense. I love it. So this is something that I love talking to husband and wife couples a lot about. It might be a question you get a lot. You probably already know what I'm going to ask, which is like, how, how is it being in business with your partner? Right? Like how, like, does it make the relationship more stressful? Does it make it better? Like, how do you navigate that? Because it's unorthodox, right? Definitely more people than not don't, most husbands and wives don't work together usually, but like, how do you, so for couples, what's your like advice? How do you feel like you can make that work? Yeah, that's incredibly challenging. Um, it is incredibly challenging. I would all, I would say that most people probably shouldn't do that. And I am like best friends with my husband. And so we make it work. And I love hanging out with him. I love working with him. But there is, um, you know, different problems that arise because you are working together. And so there's always that, like, you don't want to micromanage the other person, but you want to hold each other accountable. And it's a very, um, it's, it's a balancing act for sure. And then you have the dynamic of, like, when we go out on dates, we still just talk about work. And so it's hard to shut it off when you're married to your business partner. Gotcha. So what's your advice? Like, what do you feel like you should do? Like, that's really like, that's good that you're going on dates. That's always good. Right. But like what, what activities, what like to do's would you give to a couple that's watching this? Who's like going into business together. They're like, you know what, Megan, I know you said don't do it, but sorry, I'm going to do it. What would you say to be like, okay, but do at least this. Yeah. So I would say to have very separate roles in your business. And then you know that you're um, responsible for one thing and the other person is responsible for one thing. So in our business, I'm responsible for like the design, the managing of the flip properties, managing of contractors. And then um, we kind of tag team acquisitions. That's the only one we a little bit share, but he's very much in charge of like all the realtor business and then all the tenant management, property management, so that we can go, okay, Jeff is responsible for this. I don't need to look at it ever. I don't need to really know what's going on there. I know he's got it handled. And then I'm responsible for all of the flips. And so I, he can know that I have that handled and he doesn't need to be checking up on me. Um, so there's no drama that way. I think that's also helpful for when you start hiring employees. The employees, if you have very defined roles, know who to go to for which um, issue or like contractors, we would have problems in the beginning where the contractors would go to Jeff and say like, oh, hey, I'm checking out for the day or I'm not going to be here or whatever. And he's like, okay, sure, whatever guy. But he doesn't really realize what's going on with the projects, how it affects other things in other projects. Um, So they're kind of playing mommy, daddy and kind of pitting each other against us. Now, all of our contractors know like if it has to do with a project, 
really, if it has to do with anything contractor related, they're coming to me, not to Jeff. Gotcha. Okay. So separate the roles. That would be mm -hmm. one is separate the roles of who it is. Um, and then probably like, I'm curious if you see, if you know this book, have you ever heard of rocket fuel before you ever read that book? Um, I have bought it, but I haven't read it. Yep. Read that book. That's the best partner book in general is how I, it's how I learned. I have a business partner. It's how we learned our separate roles and what they should be based on personality. Right. How did you just, how did you decide who's going to get what? Was it based on personality? What you guys are good at? What each person like? Like, how did you, how did you decide that? Yeah, probably what we're good at, what each person is like, um, kind of our, I'm kind of more the visionary and big picture person. He is really good at doing, um, he's military. So he's good at taking orders and like doing that minutia day-to-day -day stuff that would just make me want to die. Um, so he ends up having to do like all the boring stuff and I get to do the fun things like podcasts and Instagram and, and all that it just works for us. I love it. Yeah. I mean, that's the same with my business partner. I'm the visionary. He's the integrator is the name for it in rocket fuel. You'll like that book. I, if you bought it, keep reading, actually read it. You both yeah. should read it. It's probably been the most revolutionary book for me and my business partner, understanding what the roles are supposed to be like something I might recommend because it would be based on that book is, um, he's the day-to-day -day operations in every part, but then you're the visionary in every part. Read the book. I, I don't think I'll be able to explain exactly how it would work, but that's how you're going to be using your best talents in every single way, I think. But yeah. doesn't matter. You guys are crushing it right now. Thanks. So anyways, so talking about social media a little bit, right? I mean, I found you on social media. You've been growing it. What inspired you to start growing your social media, doing podcasts, all that good stuff? Um, I started hanging out with Brandon Turner and he was like, you don't have an Instagram. What? You can't do business without an Instagram. So he made me create one right then. Um, that was a few years ago and I've kind of been growing it since. I think social media is just easy because or, you know, useful because you can put out to the world essentially and say, I need to hire someone or I need a contractor or I need whatever. And you can have other people bring that to you. Um, and so I've been growing that kind of over the last couple of years. Um, just see where it goes. Yeah, I love it. I mean, in social media has revolutionized my business, right? I don't know how many people know this. The reason why I initially started this podcast was to just grow my social media. Now it's coming, a, becoming a really good way of me networking with high level people, right? That's how I get to like have a conversation with Megan. I get to now like meet her, know her, know her business, all that stuff, see what value I can bring her. And who knows, maybe we'll eventually do a deal together. I'd have to open up probably in Lincoln, Nebraska, but you know, maybe she'll convince me it's the best market ever. I'm not sure. But either way, guys, I want you guys to know social media is insanely important. If you guys are not doing social media right now, you guys need to start. Um, like Megan, you can tell them what have been the benefits since you've started been doing social media? Like what's like you were talking about, you're able to find anybody. Have there been any benefits other than just finding people? Um, I get deals from my social media all the time. I get realtor clients. Um, so I make money through social media a lot. Um, I've also started doing like affiliate marketing stuff. Um, and then I have a course that I sell through there and, um, 
uh, we do like masterminds every once in a while and you can just sell that instantly through social media. So it, it really just, it helps for everything in your business. Literally. I think, it, I think it's, I, I probably make an extra 20 K in wholesale fees, wholesale fees every single month, just from social media, just people sending me random deals wherever it might be. Right guys. So I'm just saying guys that this stuff is supremely, supremely, supremely important. Um, so you didn't have an Instagram until you met Brandon Turner. Did you have any reservations about social media? Like, did you have, I mean, if you didn't even have an Instagram, you probably weren't a huge social media person in general. Do you have any yeah. fears surrounding that? Um, not so much fears. It's just a time commitment, right? So I had a Facebook page and I had a Facebook for uh, my Acorn Properties is my flipping business in Lincoln. And that had always been beneficial, but it was all very local. And I didn't really understand like the full effect that Instagram could have because I wasn't even on there watching what other people were doing. Um, so it was really just like, is is the juice going to be worth a squeeze? Is me putting all this time into growing a different platform um, like the Taddy Investor on Instagram, is that going to be worth putting the time into it? Um, but Brandon kind of convinced me that it would be and I just do whatever he says to do. <laughs> Nice. So how'd you meet Brandon Turner? I mean, he's a huge guy, bigger pockets, obviously the face of bigger pockets. How'd you meet him? Uh, yeah, I went to one of his masterminds, like a Maui mastermind. Um, it was a small group, like 30 people and, uh, for like a week. So it was very cool, like intimate setting where we could really actually get to know each other instead of like a big, bigger pockets convention or like thousands of people. Right. Talk about masterminds real quick, because I think probably one of the things that's made me so successful is I'm, I bet I'm like you in the sense I'm willing to pay for masterminds. I'm going to pay 20, 30 grand for mastermind if I think it's going to be actually worth it, where I'm going to get an insane ROI on my investment. What, um, when do you think someone should do a mastermind? And yeah, let's just start there. When do you think like someone should do a mastermind in their business or maybe even when should they should pay for coaching or mentorship? Um, I think there is a huge return on masterminds. I absolutely love them. All of my big growth, I think, has happened because of going to masterminds. And a lot of times they're not that expensive. They're like six or $10,000 some of them are very high level. It'd be like 50 grand. But when you're just getting started, that's not necessary. You can get one that's like under $10,000. But if you can do one extra deal because of going to that mastermind or because of something that you learn there or because of a connection that you make, it's so worth it with the ROI. Um, as far as like when should someone start doing it, it I think it depends. Um, if you if you only have $6,000 to your name and you want to get started in real estate, I kind of feel like you probably shouldn't spend it on a mastermind. Um, but if you have some money and you're valuing that education that um, people can connect you with, then I think it makes a lot of sense. I love it. Do you have mentors? How did you, and if you do, like Brandon Turner's probably is one of them. Was it all mentorships or? masterminds how how this is something i get asked a lot is jonah can i can can i be your mentee 
And I'm usually like, no, I don't even know who you are, random Instagram DMer, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess my question really is like, how do you find someone who's willing to teach you? Um, and how did you find your mentors in real estate? Um, I think that mentors come in all shapes and sizes. And I think that when you ask someone like, Hey, can you be my mentor? It, it feels like heavy and a lot of baggage. And so if you're busy doing real estate, a lot of times you're like, no, I don't know. I don't know how to deal with that. Um, but I think that when you can go to a, someone that you look up to or someone that's a few steps ahead of you and be like, can I help you with something or just offer like what you can do for them? Um, I used to go, this is so funny. I used to go to a uh, certain realtors, open houses. He would, he had this challenge. He wanted to do like a hundred open houses in a year. And so he was pretty much just bored sitting at these open houses. And so I would show up and kind of like keep him company, but I would be able to ask him all these different questions about real estate. And through that, he connected me with a different flipper in town. So then I went and met up with that flipper and I would help him like do demo or I would offer to like pick up materials from um, Home Depot and like deliver it to his jobs or whatever might be helpful just so that I could talk to him and ask him questions about stuff. And I didn't go to him and say like, can I, can you be my mentor? Because that kind of feels like you're just meeting someone and being like, can we get married? Like it would be awkward. Um, but you could go to someone and say, hey, can we grab coffee? Can I help you with something? And then just be able to have someone to ask questions to. Basically what Megan's saying here, guys, is ask us out on dates first. Don't just ask <laughs> us to be married immediately. All right. It doesn't work if you just propose as soon as you meet them. Um, so um, let's talk about the rest of your real estate journey. So you do the you do that flip, you lose 20K, then you already are in a flip in Southern California. Go more into your story a little bit. Like so you're doing that flip. What happens then? What happens with the live-in flip or just in general? Yeah, it keeps happening. Like you do the flip. What happens with the flip? How does your real estate journey keep progressing? Yeah. So um, like I said, my my husband got kicked out of the military, uh, medically separated. So um he got paid VA disability. So he would get like a small amount of money per month, but we couldn't live on that in California. So we decided to move to Lincoln and we sold everything we owned in California, including that live in flip. Um, we ended up making $80,000 on it. And then we moved into a travel trailer um, because we didn't know if real estate was going to really work at that point, but we wanted to be all in and like full time. So we moved into the travel trailer and lived in that trailer behind our projects in Nebraska for the first year. Um, so in that first year, we bought five different houses or five different properties. One was a duplex um, and just kind of bought them however, which way we could. One of them we flipped. The other ones we kept as rentals. Um, we mostly were doing the burst strategy on those. And one of them was the duplex that we did a VA loan on, um, but ended up not actually moving into it. So just kind of doing whatever we could. And at that point, it was mostly about cash flow for us. So a lot of them were student rentals um, and really big old houses, but we could get like $1,000 a month of, of cash flow on those. And so with within like a few houses, we were able to be like, okay, this is working now. We can move into a house. We don't need to live in the trailer forever. 
um, but kind of proved to ourselves that real estate was going to work for us. I love it. So you started doing student rentals specifically. Why did you do student rentals? Um, at that time, you could get more for a student rental than for a family rental. Uh, you could get about $400 per bedroom. Um, so if you got a five bedroom house, um, you could get like uh, $2,000. I'm not good at math. That's terrible. You get like $2,000 for it. Um, but if you rented out that same house to a family, maybe you would get like $1,500. Um, and so it made a lot of sense when we were trying to get big cash flow in the beginning. And then after a couple of years, we reevaluated our portfolio like 2020. I thought, man, maybe this is going to be the peak with all the COVID stuff going on. And so we ended up selling off a lot of those student rentals because they were just such a pain in the butt. Like you would have to turn them over every year to a new group of five students. And then they would have five co-signers on the lease. And it was just like a lot of drama, um, right. drama tenants, you know. Um, so we kind of got rid of those and moved more into like truly long-term rentals um, that are more like families. And then we even do sober living houses now. Gotcha. So how do you deal with drama tenants? I bet there's people watching who have some drama tenants, like, how, like, and especially sober living. I mean, I have friends who do sober living. Those are also drama tenants. Um, why'd you decide to do sober living? And then also, um, yeah, like, how do you handle that? Um, I make Jeff deal with it. <laughs> no. Oh, amazing. Oh, Guys, that's, that's how you do it. Just get your husband to deal with it. Yeah. There you go. You know, and some of that is you could hire a property manager um, or have someone else in, do that. It's really not the best use of my time for sure. Um, but you have drama. You have to just deal with it as it comes. We have a sevenplex right now, which is the the biggest property that we bought usually our, our properties are single families and duplex duplexes and we own a sevenplex right now that's just the most tenant drama and weird things come up and you call your attorney and you're like how do i deal with this and the attorney serves the paperwork and you just keep plugging along it's kind of just part of the business love it awesome so you got it you start doing the buy and holds you start growing a property, sorry, was it a um, a staging company you said, right? Yes. Yep. What made you want to start so many different businesses? Was what you told me earlier about wanting like steady income from different sources, was it all planned out? Or was it just more you guys just, you just went full visionary and just was like, you know what, let's just start this, let's start this, let's start this, let's start this. Like, how did it come to be where you started doing so many different things? Yeah, probably was full visionary. Like I get bored easily and I'm like, oh, this is broken. Really, the staging company came from me being like trying to hire a staging company for my flips and then not having any that I liked. Um, and I just felt like, man, you guys are making this way more difficult than it needs to be. I could do this way better. I can make this simple. Um, and then talking to different staging companies and realizing like they're not actually that profitable because of how they're doing it. So I'll just do it myself and I'll make it simple. And so I started at first just staging my houses and then started staging my houses in Jeff's listings. And then from there, started bringing on other clients as well. And we probably staged like 80 to 100 houses a year now. I love it. 
amazing. So, so we talked about goals. We talked about a lot of the fears that you initially had. Do you feel like, do you feel like there are any fears that are still holding you back? Do you feel like there's still fears of like certain things that could make your business better? Like for instance, for mine, one of mine that I always have trouble with is spending money. Like my overhead in my uh, wholesaling business is now like 30K a month, right? Which is a lot of money. We're making like 80 to 90K a month. But, you know, if I want to spend money on a mastermind or stuff like that, it's still a lot of money. It can be pretty scary, right? Um, that's one of the fears I struggle with. Are there any fears you feel like you still struggle with that might be holding you back in your business? Yeah, I think that right now with kind of where what the market is doing and I don't know because I don't have a crystal ball, but I think that there's a lot of uncertainty in the market. So I think that I'm a little bit fearful of like ramping up right now or scaling up because I want to also be in a position where I could easily scale back if something weirder than what's happening starts happening right now. Um, but I think that that might just be, you know, healthy fear. Um, you don't want to just be gung ho and, I probably am more gung-ho than I should be. Um, and so I think it is good to have like a little bit of healthy fear and just have your ear to the ground on like what is going on and not just be in growth mode all the time. Right. That makes sense. I mean, that's especially true with flipping. I mean, flipping, the thing is you guys are so sensitive to everything and wholesaling comes the downline from that, but wholesaling, you never you never lose money, you lose time, right? And money spent on marketing and stuff like that. But um, it makes sense, especially for flipping, because it's really hard to tell. What do you feel like? I know this is probably the hardest thing for people to answer right now. But what do you what do you think is the forecast for 2024? You think we're going into a recession? You think we're going to be fine? You think we're going to stabilize? What do you feel? What's your gut reaction of what where do you feel like we're going? Um, I don't know. I watch the stats, at least in my market, very closely. Um, and for a long time, I was like, this is fine. This is fine. Nothing's changing because there was such a shortage of supply. We still had barely one month of inventory on our market. And now we have over two months of inventory on our market. And so to me, I'm going like, okay, this is very different than it's been for a long time, which still historically, that's still very low supply. Um, and so you have to kind of battle that that inner turmoil of like, is this actually a recession or a downturn or is this just returning back to normal? And so I think that I don't think we'll see a huge crash like 2008. Like I don't think prices will go to half and I definitely don't think that will happen in the Midwest, like Nebraska, maybe it will on the coast. Um, but even in 2008, Nebraska only saw a 20% decrease. And I think it will be less than that. But what we will be seeing, I think, more is higher days on market. We're already starting to see that. Um, and so we just need to be more um, conservative on our ARV numbers and then also just build in more holding costs into our, into our budget so that we're not caught on the back end of our flips. Makes sense. Um, I definitely, that obviously makes sense to me. I mean, I think it's just good to be conservative with flipping in general. Um, 
what are you seeing? Because I, I don't know the Midwest at all. I know California. In California, I mean, I think you're 100% right. I think my personal opinion is there's going to be recessions in certain places, and then it's going to stay the same in others. Because 8% on a million dollars is way different than 8% on $200,000, right? Um, like in Lincoln, Nebraska, what's like the average house price? I bet it's like 200K, 300K. Yeah, like 270, something like that. 270, right? People do the math. You can put it into a mortgage calculator, like 8% when you do a million, that's like a couple thousand dollars. Well, 8%, I mean, 8% versus like 3%, which is where we were at like a year ago. First, like 8% to 3% on 250K, 270K, it's a couple hundred dollars, maybe a thousand, maybe a thousand, 200 or something like that. So it's all about the affordability in the end, right? Um, let's say it does go into what you think it will go into, which is like a correction, right? Like you start seeing, it starts happening again, like it did kind of the middle of last year where there was definitely a correction initially. Um, for a couple months as interest rates rose, definitely more fix and flippers got scared because they're like, okay, that means housing prices are going to start going down. And they did start going down sort of made, if I feel like it, depending on the market, it sort of made a rebound depending. Um, let's say prices start going down again. What's your strategy? Like, what are you, what are you planning on doing if that happens? Um, I am right now kind of playing hot potato with some properties so my goal is to get in and get out of them as quickly as possible whereas maybe you know 2000 2021 uh, sorry 2020 2021 2022 even was like hgtv them out like make them the best house ever and really push that arv up right now i think it's better to just do what you need to do, put a little lipstick on it and get it sold as quickly as possible because it's not going to tank 10% in a month. It's going to tank 10% over, you know, a year. So if it did, right? And so I think that if you can get in and get out of houses quicker, that would be the key. So we're doing a lot of like wholesale deals right now, more so than I want to like fully gut a house. Um and then I, I think we just need to be really conservative with our rental numbers because even when I'm talking to the banks, they're saying that they foresee rates coming down a little bit or at least tapering off. But when I talked to them a year ago, they would have not guessed it would be at 8% and it is right now. So they obviously don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to not I trust mean, them. <laughs> I think, I don't think banks 100% know what like, nobody nobody ever really knows right uh my prediction and i'm i'm curious if i'm gonna be right my prediction last year right when interest rates were starting to go up i'm like i like i said i think it could get to 10 percent, right we'll see if that happens inflation has slowed down a lot but in a lot of other areas it hasn't still to this day and i don't i don't know what it's i don't i keep hearing that if interest rates go down at all then housing prices will explode. And that means everything explodes and then we still have inflation again, right? Which would create the whole problem. They raise interest rates again and then we're just playing hot potato with the entire economy, right? Um, I would say this, and I think Megan, you'll probably agree with me, but you can tell me your thoughts on this. I would say no matter what guys, keep doing business in the end, it doesn't matter what the economy does. It matters just that we're still doing what we need to be doing 
helping sellers, getting them, getting them what they need so that then we're able to make money on these properties. That will never change no matter what is happening in the economy, right? Um, so Megan, like, how do you, how do you get your deals? Do you buy them from wholesalers? You said you wholesale yourself. Do you go directly to the seller sometimes? And, um, and yeah, just real quick answer that one. Yeah, we do some direct, uh, marketing. So we do like pay-per-click, we do cold calling, um, text blasting. So kind of that marketing business that's more wholesaling, but we also do get deals from realtors that bring us deals because of our reputation and then wholesalers. So we're just kind of all over the place. Which one is your best marketing channel? Which one's like the one that's bringing you in the most money? Um, right now, Paper Lead is is doing really well for us. The conversion rate on it is so great because they're going to you know the internet and saying, "How do I sell my house fast?" Like they have a real need. Whereas the text blasting or cold calling, it's it's a slow burn for sure. Gotcha. Yeah. What's your favorite paper lead source? Do you have any affiliates we can drop real quick? I'll help you out. Yeah, yeah, I do. I have an affiliate with uh, Need to Sell My House Fast. So I would make money off of that link, but it is also the best lead source that I've um, been using this year. I've closed like the primarily the most of my paid marketing leads have been through them. I love it. I love yeah. it a lot. Um, so. I'm mainly a wholesaler, right? Now I'm going to ask you some questions that are just personally going to help me. This is half the reason why I do this podcast is I get to network with people who are cooler than me. I'm a wholesaler, right? Let's say I want to go into fix and flipping. The thing that obviously scares me the most is managing contractors. That seems like the worst thing ever. I've done a few flips and they went well because I partnered with other people, but they already had existing contractor relationships. Am I right? Is that the thing I should fear the most as a wholesaler trying to fix and flip? Or are there other things I should be concerned about? Um, let's start there. Let's start with that question. Yeah, I think that's probably the easiest thing to get kind of wrong is the contractors. And some of that is just going to be like you have to learn along the way. Um, I will say that like rock stars, no rock stars is so true. If you find a really great agent or you find a really great other flipper, they're going to have really great contractors and really great subs um, that they'll share with you. Um, I think a lot of it is just like, don't trust. This sounds terrible, but don't trust your contractors explicitly. Um, they are humans too. And I think a lot of them, get into trouble with like robbing Peter to pay Paul. So they'll start uh, a new job just to get the deposit on it so that they have money to pay their guys to finish their last job. And I want to feel like they're not doing it on purpose, but you don't want to like allow them to exploit you like that. So definitely when you're paying out contractors, don't be paying out big chunks. I hear a lot of big uh, new flippers We'll, we'll do like a 50% of the the deposit up front and that's just too much. Like maybe you could do a sixth of the of the whole bid up front as a deposit, um, but don't let your money get ahead of the work on the project. Right. How do you find those contractors that aren't, uh, I forgot the phrase, paying Peter to pay Paul, whatever you said. Yeah. Like how do you find those ones who aren't doing that? 
they're all doing that. <laughs> you just uh, have to make sure they're not taking advantage of you while they're doing that. Um, I, I mean, maybe they're not, maybe not all of them are the ones. So that how do you check for that? Um, I would check, um, I would ask for recommendations and talk to their past clients and make sure that they are actually finishing jobs and that they're doing a good job. And that when you go have a punch list at the end, that they're actually coming back to finish up that punch list. Um, that if you actually call the recommendations and talk to them, that would cut out half of the BS that you're going to run into contractors with. Um, another thing is some contractors won't require a deposit. Like I have exterior guys that will do $30,000 of exterior work and not require a dime until they get around to invoicing it 30 days later after it's done. And so, you know, like they're not going to screw me over. I like, I have nothing out. Right. And so if you can find somebody that would do that, they obviously, um, you're in a better situation for it. But I think a lot of times contractors get screwed over by flippers too, not getting paid. Um, and in a market right now where some flippers or builders are maybe going under, the contractors are going to be more weary of that and probably will be getting deposits from most people. Have you been hearing that? Have you been hearing about, have any of your friends been going under? Do, do you know any developers that are going under? Is that something you've heard? I'm curious because I, all I do as a wholesaler, all that happens is they just stop responding to my texts. Right. But yeah. I am kind, I am kind of curious if you've been hearing about that. Is that something that you've been seeing um, happening? Um, I, I think that happens all the time. And when, when the market shifts or the market goes down or interest rates go to whatever they're at, um, it's going to catch a lot of people in a bad spot. Um, I, I know that a lot of multifamily investors will be stuck in bridge debt that they can't refi. And so I think that there'll be a lot of opportunities, um, coming up for people to, to buy those at a discount because of the tough spots that investors are in. Um, from a contractor standpoint, if you want to think about it that way, like me as a stager, I am a contractor. My service is staging, but people pay me as a 1099 contractor. And I am seeing that some of my flippers and some of my builders are having a hard time paying and paying quickly or on time. And I really have to like go after them for it. And I think that is because the market is slowing down. And so they don't have as much cash um, laying around. Gotcha. Makes sense. So we're coming to the end of the interview, right? We got like nine more minutes and there's like a couple of questions I love ending these interviews with. So number one is, do you have any books that like you really recommend to people that would like that change your entrepreneurial journey? Um, I think the book on flipping houses is such a good like nuts and bolts book. It's by Jay Scott. And I think you can read it and just follow it exactly and then start flipping houses. Like it's all the information. Mm -hmm. Probably a lot of the costs that he talks about are like you could just times it by three at this point because it's, you know, before COVID prices. But right. the the meat and potatoes are just great in that book. Love it. Awesome. And then the last question that I love asking people is like, Megan, if you could go back to 
right when you were starting in real estate? Like what would, um, what, like you could go back to your, to your past self. You can go back to that Megan who, I didn't even ask you, when did you start in real estate investing? How long ago was that first flip? Uh, like 2015, I think. 2015, so seven, eight years ago now. If you could go back eight years to that Megan who just started flipping, what would you tell her then knowing everything that you know now? I would probably say to rely on people more. Um, I think when you're getting started, maybe, you know, if you've only been an employee, you're used to just doing everything on your own. And I think that schools teach us that nowadays, like don't cheat on the test, don't ask for help. And so if you, if I had reached out to anyone doing flipping and said, Hey, I have this deal under contract, but will you look over the numbers? Will you tell me what I'm missing? I kind of felt like maybe they would steal my deal from me. But if I had, they would have said, oh, you forgot to factor in commissions and closing costs and your holding time is probably going to be longer than that because this is the first project you've ever done. And I could have taken that as wisdom and not have to learn the hard way. Um, but but I didn't because I, I didn't want to like share. And real estate is such a fun like team sport and everybody that is in real estate wants to talk about it, wants to help the person that's a few steps behind. And so reach out, reach out when you need help. So real quick follow-up question on that. How, how did you learn to, how'd you get over that? How do you, how'd you initially, so you initially weren't wanting to reach people out. Sounds like you had a fear of people stealing your deals. How did you overcome that and realize, wait a minute, this is actually exactly what everyone does. It's how anybody becomes successful at anything. Yeah, I think I just, you know, started talking to people at RIA meetings or whatever and kind of just more and more realize like nobody's out to steal your deal. It's such an abundance mindset. Once you kind of make that switch, it makes it easy to share. Gotcha. Cool. I love it. Well, real quick, do you have anything you want to promote, anything you want to plug? I mean, I wanted to share anything my audience can follow, reach out to you, send, obviously send you deals. Like where would they, let's start with just how would they reach out to you? Um, I am very active on Instagram, the Taddy Investor with underscores, the underscore Taddy underscore Investor. Um, so that's a great spot to reach me. T-A-T-T-Y. Hold on. Let's just make sure I got it right. Like that? That's perfect. Yep. Okay. Yep. Cool. So reach out to you on Instagram there. Um, what should my audience do for you? How can they bring you value? What do you need right now? If you had an audience of people who, you know, they're real estate investors all over the, the country trying to do it, what can they bring you that would actually be valuable? Um, if they're wholesaling in Lincoln, Nebraska, I'm buying properties. So that for sure. Um, or even any of the small towns around Lincoln. Um, and then I'm also, um, starting a coaching program in January, but I'm starting to sell that now, uh, through my Instagram, but that is like a six month kind of getting you from doing nothing in real estate to real estate investor. Um, so really just getting people started in, in real estate. Cool. And they would just DM you for that? Yep. Love it. Awesome. Cool. Well, Megan, um, you got that. What 
do you have any last words before I shut off? You've been an amazing guest. I've been loving it. I love your story. Yeah. Do you have any last words? Yeah, I think, you know, with the fear thing, to get over the fear, a lot of times if you just go all the way down the rabbit hole of fear, it it helps a ton, right? Like maybe say, I'm scared that if I bought this house, then I would go bankrupt. Okay, well, what is the percentage, like probability that you actually would go bankrupt just from buying this one bad deal? Mm -hmm, probably not that bad. And if that did happen, then what would you do? Well, I would have to get a job. Okay, well, then you'd be in the exact same position that you're in right now. I love and that. when you break it down and take take that example and that fear way too far, then you realize it's probably not going to happen anyways. And if it did happen, would you be okay with that result? And the answer is probably yes. But if you take the opposite down the same rabbit hole and say, if I don't do it, if I never got started in real estate, am I okay with that? Am I okay with being on my deathbed and being like, man, I wish I would have gone full out. I wish I would have um, taken more risk. And instead, I just le lived this like mediocre, simple life, which isn't a bad thing. Maybe that's what you want to do. But I think it's it's powerful to go all the way with those thoughts. I love that. That's so true. I really like the idea of, okay, you go bankrupt. You're exactly where you would have been anyways. So does it really make that much of a difference? Maybe your credit would suck for five years. Is that worth chasing your dreams? And that's the worst possible case scenario. So I love that, Megan. You've been an amazing guest. Guys, next week, I'm going to be announcing this on my Instagram next week. I'm going to put myself back in as an acquisition manager. I've been announcing this over and over and over again. Go into my Instagram page and go to the link under my bio or in my bio. Click the first thing, the Act Manager Challenge, guys. You can sign up for the private Zoom there. You will see how I run my company, how I, uh, how I close deals. You'll see everything I do or everything my Act Managers do and everything I do because there'll be still some like sales manager stuff I do. Every single day for eight hours straight. We start from 9:30 a.m. MST all the way till 6 p.m. MST. So, guys, check that out. Megan, again, thank you so much for coming on here. We're Thanks out. We're out. Let's freaking go. You did